But if you will, turn your, in your copy of the scriptures you have to Zechariah chapter 3. And as you turn there, let's pray together. We praise you, O Lord, for you are great and glorious. We thank you and we praise you that you seen our poor state and you, loving your own glory, sent Christ for our sakes, for our salvation. That it is in Christ alone we're justified. His righteousness is all our plea. That Jesus satisfied all your law's demands and his work set us free. Amen. Lord, that's our only hope. The work of Christ. His blood shed for us. His perfect life lived for us. And so we praise you. And we come and we lift up many who are in need. Those in the hospital, even now. Like our sister, Cindy. And for her family. I pray for the Smock family. And for the newbies. In time of grief, would you strengthen and give wisdom? Fill them with your spirit. May their eyes be set upon Christ who was indeed raised from the dead to an indestructible life and is coming back again for his own. And the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are remaining will be caught up together with them forever to be with the Lord in the air. Lord, we have many that hurt and are sick. We have grandparents, we have parents, we have children in need. And in our, of ourselves, we do not have the resources to take it or to stand or to help. We need you, O oh Lord. Help us. Lord, when we face troubles in this life, would you fix our mind on the great works that you have done in the past? How you, as we've seen on Sunday nights, parted the Red Sea miraculously. Of your mighty hand and your power, the greatest armies of this, on this earth can't stand against them. Lord, your deeds are marvelous. Even death has no sting compared to the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. That the work of your spirit is greater than the grave. It's greater than fear in the face of operations. It's greater than trials in this world that are topsy and turvy because of sin. 
Lord, we pray. We know that the, uh, this week, Passover will begin, and there are many who are still enslaved to the traditions of men. And as Paul longed for the salvation of his kinsmen according to the flesh, Lord, we continue to pray for the Jewish people to this day that they would see Christ is the Messiah, that their only hope is in the suffering servant. How sad it would be to be numbered among their people and have all that you've done for them in their past and then suffer your torment and punishment for eternity because they would not trust Christ because they don't love you. Christ said if they love me, loved the Father, they would love me. Lord, would you turn the hearts of hard people to yourself? And Lord, for this, in this room, as my brother prayed, uh, those that are lost in their sin, how sad it would be for us to sit in this room, hear gospel truths, and go home and perish and be lost for eternity. Lord, would you do a, a miracle in dead hearts and bring life this morning? Would you bring hope in the midst of despair and peace, in the midst of chaos? May hearts find life as they trust in Jesus Christ. He is all and in all. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Here in Zechariah 3, it starts off, I mean, it's a dramatic scene. We want to set the setting for this. It's a dramatic period uh, that we're going to read this vision. We're going to see the angel of the Lord again. We've seen him over the last couple times, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. We're going to see a high priest. His name is Joshua, and Joshua is doing what high priests do. He's going before the presence of the Lord but this act of worship quickly turns into a tribunal because it's not just the angel of the Lord that's there. There's also the devil, Satan, the accuser. That's what his name means. He's the chief accuser. He's the opponent of God and God's people. And he's, we're going to see, he's there, he's going to accuse Joshua before the heavenly courts. He is uh, pressing um, his litigation, suing for Joshua's destruction. And so even before we read the text, I want us to just address this up front. We are forced in Zechariah chapter 3 to consider the spiritual battle that is in our lives, all of our lives. So you may fall on one of two ends. You may say, never think about spiritual warfare or spiritual battles. You might not do that. You, matter of fact, you may be under the illusion that our world is only what you can see and feel and taste and smell. That's all, that's all you think there is to this world, the universe that God made. Meanwhile, some of, the other, some of you may go to the other extreme and you want to find a demon under every leaf 
and everything that you don't like has got to have a demon hiding behind it, and boy, you're, you're hyper the other way. You reduce the reality of the supernatural to a character and a parody of what it really is. C.S. Lewis said there's two dangers. One is to not believe in the existence of demons. The other is, not, is that, yes, you believe in them, but you've got this excessive, unhealthy interest in them. And, he says, the demons are happy either way. You both help their end. He said they like the materialist and the magician alike. Zechariah 3 is not going to afford that either one of those is an option for us. You cannot dismiss Satan as a myth, nor can you allow for some warped uh, ideas from some kind of overripe imagination. We see the reality of who Satan is. Here the curtain is going to be pulled back. And when it's pulled back, you'll notice there's no gore. There's nothing that goes bump in the night. None of that's here. It's actually more chilling than anything Hollywood can produce. We're going to see Satan doing what he does. And that is accuse us. It's his daily business. This is his work. He, he charges God's children. Here's Joshua, the high priest. He's the representative of God's people. And here's Satan. He's going to be accusing, demanding swift justice in the execution of God's justice. And friends, that's the reality. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That is what he does. That is what he is doing. That's the world in which we inhabit. So Christian... I want you to understand that you are opposed. And the worst opposition that you can face is not from the uh, social warrior of the day, cultural social warrior. It's not, it's not from the academic secularist. That's not our biggest threat. Our biggest threat is not from Islamic fundamentalists. That's not our biggest danger. Our fiercest enemy is the accuser of the brethren, the devil, the enemy of your soul, accusing you before God, pointing out your failures, seeking your condemnation and destruction. That's our greatest enemy. Well, Zechariah chapter 3 shows us, yes, that's there, but I want us to see God's marvelous provision in the gospel of grace, even in the face of Satan's malice, all right? So as I read, here's the outline. Verses 1 to 3, we're going to see the defense. Verses 4 to 5, the cleansing. Verses 6 and 7, the challenge. And verses 8 and 10, the deliverance. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. 
And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor, come under his vine and under his fig tree. Well, the courts assembled. The heavenly court. There is Joshua, the defendant. There's the heavenly court, the heavenly judge. And there's the satanic prosecutor. Notice Satan does not need to invent any charges against Joshua. It's not like Jesus' trial. Remember Jesus' trial where they have the false witnesses come up and they can't keep their stories straight? Uh, They all have to invent uh, some charge against Jesus. But that's not the case here with Joshua. We see so. Look at verse 3. Joshua is standing before the angel with filthy garments. Now, this would have been a shocking image. Zechariah here, who is a priest, it would have been shocking. Filthy garments. The high priest is supposed to wear this sacred, pristine, white linen vestment. Before he could enter into the presence of God, before he could go in to the presence of God, he he had to wear this. But here he is covered with, we're we're told, filth. Literally, excrement. That's what's on this man. He is unclean in every way imaginable. Literally, ritually, every way that you can imagine. Joshua is unclean in every sense of the word. And here is God. And Joshua's before him. And Joshua is unacceptable. Joshua is, is contemptible. Joshua is vile. It's a powerful image here of Joshua the sinner, isn't it? And all Satan has to do is point. To point. To point at Joshua. But he, has, he only has to point because the evidence is plain. It's absolutely clear. It's all right there on the table, right? Uh, he's got stomach-turning, repulsive filth. The facts are plain. He's unclean. He's condemnable. No false accusations are needed for Joshua. And can I say, no false accusations are needed against us. None of us. We are defiled and degraded by our own muck of our own sin. 
We have all fallen short of God's glory. We all are filthy. Our best works are filthy rags. And so the devil only needs to point. Point at the facts. The facts are plain. They're irrefutable. But something absolutely extraordinary happens. Do you see it in verse 2? The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So here's Satan, haughty, pointing, condemning, accusing. He's waiting for the sentence of God to fall, and the sentence of God does fall, but it does not fall on Joshua. It falls on the accuser, doesn't it? The anathema, the angel of the Lord, the curse of divine wrath doesn't fall on Joshua. It falls on the accuser. He says, the Lord rebuke you. And those are empty words. The Lord rebuke you. Do you remember Psalm 106 verse 9? It says, the Lord rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. Remember when Jesus comes to earth, Mark chapter 4, verse 39. Remember, they're out on the sea, and Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And there the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Remember that? The rebukes of Jesus, they bring about the judgments that are being called for. These aren't empty words. And here the Lord defends his people, doesn't he? He rebukes Satan. He's the Lord, we see, who has chosen Jerusalem. Joshua is the representative of the people in Jerusalem, in that city. He's their high priest. He's the one who goes before God for them. And so when Satan condemns the high priest, he's not just condemning one man. He's condemning the whole people. Because they have no access to God if Joshua's gone. But it's the Lord who has chosen them. They are his elect. They are precious to him. And what do we see? We see the Lord defends them. It's just like in John 17 where Jesus, he is praying for the disciples. Jesus says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Having been given a people in the love of God, what does Jesus do? He intercedes for them. He defends them against every charge. Do you know the love of God in Christ Jesus? Do you know the love of God? It's only found in Christ. If so, if you know the love of God in Christ, I want to tell you, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What you have. Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. In Christ, we have a perfect defender. It's not the fires of hell. It's not hellfire and judgment for us, right? No, the description, a brand plucked from the fire. That's an amazing image. A brand plucked from the fire. Christian, that's what you are. A brand plucked from the fire. Plucked from the burning. 
rescued from final destruction, rescued from God's wrath, spared from the judgment to come by God's infinite mercy and grace, a brand plucked from the fire. Do you know that at one time you were on your way to hell? But God in his grace and love towards you in Christ has rescued you. Well, Satan is astounded, right? <laughs> because the rebuke doesn't fall on Joshua. Rebuke falls on Satan. He's astounded. Joshua's astounded. Everybody, I mean, imagine the Lord's words being spoken. Satan, the Lord rebuked you, Satan. Everyone looking on here knows Joshua is guilty. All right? Satan knows Joshua's guilty. Joshua knows Joshua's guilty. Zechariah knows Joshua's guilty. We know uh, Joshua's guilty. God knows Joshua is guilty. And yet, Joshua is not condemned. If you are trusted, a Christian and you are trusting in Christ, the same thing can be said for you. Are you a sinner? Yeah, absolutely. I am. And guess what? We all know it too. We all are. All of us. Satan knows it. He knows, hey, we're filthy. We're damnable. It's not, we can't deny it. The Lord knows it. And still in his great love for you, Jesus Christ defends you. That's stunning. Absolutely stunning. But don't miss this before we go on. What's that mean? If you're not in Christ, you've got no defense. You are filthy before God, and you've got no one to plead your case for you. If you're not a Christian, I hope you hear that. There is no defense. Satan's accusations are true. And there's no one to plead your cause to stand up for you. You have no defender. You have no defense before the throne of God if you're not in Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5, because it even gets more astounding. <laughs> Look at the cleansing here. The angel of the Lord, he tells the attendants, go remo remove these filthy garments uh, from Joshua. He turns to Joshua. He says, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I will clothe you with a pure vestment. And these angelic attendants, they do it. They obey. Zechariah here, uh, he's so overcome as they're taking off these dirty vestments. Zechariah burst in, right? Oh, don't forget the turban. In Exodus 28, we're told the turban has this, it's this golden uh, plaque. And it would go on the turban. And on that golden plaque would say, holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. Zechariah said, don't forget that. Holy to the Lord. And so that turban that crowns this whole great, uh, these pure vestments, this grand final declaration. Holy to, he's gone from filthiness to holy to the Lord. Instead of filth, now Joshua, by God's grace, gloriously holy to the Lord. So Joshua is now clothed, he's arrayed in these pure vestments, his iniquity is taken away. This is the cleansing work of Christ. So, let's ask, what just happened? What happens here? Because Satan is right. Satan is right. Joshua is unworthy. Joshua should be condemned. 
He's right about Joshua. He's right about you. He's right about me. We are unworthy. We deserve condemnation, right? But Jesus, he not only defends us, he makes us clean in the sight of God. This is what takes place. He robes us in robes of righteousness. He takes away our filthy garments. Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with jewels. This garment of salvation, this robe of righteousness, this beautiful headdress, the priest would wear this, hey, unfettered access to the throne of God. All that is yours. All that has been given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what Christ gives us. All of it. I want to say this. We need reminding of that. All of us need reminding of that. Why? Because Satan delights in reminding you of your own sinful estate. He loves to remind you of your filthy garments, your own consciences. You feel the weight of your own consciences because you look at your life and all you see is remaining sin. I still struggle with things. Well, Satan is thrilled, right? to keep in all of our sin in our own view, and we are paralyzed by our own shame. But that's not the final truth for you if you're a Christian. That's not the final thing to be said. If you are God's, you are a brand that has been plucked from the burning. If today you are in Jesus Christ, if you trust in Christ, You are counted as righteous in God's sight. That's the final word. Now, certainly Satan will remind you of your sin, but the gospel of God's grace is good news, and it reminds us, doesn't it, of the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to us. It's given to us, and it's received. How? By faith alone. We're covered with Christ's perfect, clean vestments. The devil denounces our failures. The good news is not just that Jesus forgives your sins. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. The good news is celebrates Christ's obedience for us. So that when the Father sees us, he doesn't see our rebellion, our filth. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son friends we need to learn from joshua do you notice what joshua does in this whole thing so the devil's accusing what does what does joshua do he never opens his mouth he larry lose the gift gift of gab when it comes to this you don't defend yourself here because you got no defense christ defends him Christ cleanses him. Joshua never pleads his own own cause, right? He never trusts his own work to clean up the stain of sin. 
He rests entirely on the person and the work of Christ. Christ's obedience, Christ's blood, that is a sufficient answer for any of the enemy's assaults. You ever hear the story? I love the story about Luther. Uh, he was having a dream, and in this dream, uh, the Satan is reading off this litany of his sins, this long list of sins. And uh, Luther says he, that he tells the devil, oh yeah, but get to the bottom. But look at the last sin. Look at the bottom one. And at the bottom it said, the blood of Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. Cleanses from all sin. Friends, brothers, that's us. Imagine, right now, imagine your head, all the sins you've done. Huh. Long lists. And then look at the last one. The blood of Christ. And know that the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. That breaks the paralysis of satanic accusation. It's not self-defense. It's not, well, I'm trying my best. It won't work in the face of the devil's accusations. Doing better won't help. Christ, Christ has acted for us. We're clothed in his righteousness. Believer in Jesus, you are clean because Jesus is clean. Praise God for the gospel of grace. But look at this challenge, verses 6 and 7. There's this wonderful balance here in this chapter, right? Uh, this gracious gift of these clean robes, uh, they replace our filthy garments. This is our justification on one hand. And then there's this gracious challenge to gospel obedience, right? Gospel holiness, our sanctification on the other hand. So having had sin forgiven, having iniquity wiped away, Joshua was being called and commissioned that his life, in his life, he would grow in personal holiness, that he would grow in his, his, his obedience to the Lord. He's going to walk in my ways. He will keep my charge. These two facets of the Christian life can never be separated, friends. You can't divorce these two things. Those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. You've been given a robe of Christ's righteousness. You also bear Christ's likeness in your walk. Spurgeon said, there's no holiness without forgiveness, but the forgiven always grow in holiness. There's this exhortation to grow in obedience and personal holiness. But it comes, notice, in the form of a conditional promise. Two privileges, if you obey. First privilege, you will enjoy gospel usefulness. Notice the direction. You will rule my house, so you'll, you, you'll oversee the temple. You'll have charge of my courts. The priest is going to fulfill his role, his duty before the Lord, his priestly ministry there in the temple. That's what he'll do. His usefulness is contingent upon his obedience. So God is not, uh, it's not uh, the greater talent that God blesses. It is obedience to Jesus. That's what he blesses. They are talented uh, car salesmen. 
That's not the blessing of Christ. The blessing of Christ is, comes with obedience to Christ. God blesses and uses obedient servants. So you want to be useful in the gospel? Pursue gospel obedience. Pursue that. Second thing, notice, uh, gospel access. He says, I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So access to my throne, access to my presence, communing with me. There is a connection between growing obedience and a deeper communion with God. Deeper communion with God. There is a, there is a connection between backsliding and the withdrawal of the Father's smile. Now, if I could say it this way, there's no use in praying. There's no use in reading your Bible. There's no use in coming to church on Sundays if you are not going to be serious about dealing with sin. There's no use in being here. Obedience, real communion with God, by God's Spirit, through His Word, ordinarily always attend with obedience. And I said that, it's not mechanical. It's not as though like, hey, I'm close to God, the moment I sin, I stop being close to God. It's not like that. But just organically, it grows like that. The more obedient I am, the deeper the, I find my communion with God grows. As I backslide, I may be very close to the Lord. And as I start giving way to sin in certain areas of my life, it's not an immediate turn off. But over time I find I'm far from the Lord. I'm far from the grace that I once knew, the closeness that I once felt. So do you want more of the presence of God in your life? Do you want that? Do you want to enjoy the sweetness of communion with Jesus Christ in the means of grace? Do you want to know communion with Jesus in the preached word or in praying his promises or in uh, the gospel made visible in these ordinances? You want the Lord's Supper to mean more to you than just something we do every month? You be obedient to the Lord. Grow in obedience. Pursue obedience. Growing away. You, you want to know about the Holy Spirit in your life, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your heart? You want to know that more and more? Work in obedience. You be serious about rooting out sin. Give yourself to diligent pursuit of holiness. You get serious about the Christian life, and what you're going to find is you have a deeper communion and relationship with God that you've ever experienced, you've ever known. Jim Boyce said, the road to deeper fellowship with the triune God is paved with Christian obedience. Pursue obedience if you want a deeper relationship with God. Notice, lastly, the deliverance. There is a question that is unanswered so far in our text. 
Because God, Joshua is guilty as charged, right? God is holy. We are not. Satan is, is condemning him. Joshua's forgiving, given. This commission to serve is given. How does that work? How? How's that work? How can a holy God do anything except condemn filthy Joshua? How? Paul asks the same question. He says, how can God be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? Romans 3, 26. Well, the answer comes in verses 8 through 10 here. Notice, first off, notice, Joshua and his friends, he says, you are a sign. And they are signs that point to another one. Someone still to come. Someone who's coming in the future, verse 8. And there are three titles given to this one who is coming in the future. The servant of the Lord, the branch, and the stone. See those three titles? The servant of the Lord, the branch, and the stone. The servant of the Lord, your minds, you think of Isaiah 53, where it's the suffering servant. It is the servant of the Lord who comes, he makes atonement for sins through his wounds and through his affliction that he bears. He saves. The branch, this king who's descended from David, Jeremiah 23, verse 5, for instance, says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In the stone, in the context here, probably refers to that particular stone that would be used as significant in the building and the reconstruction of the temple, the cornerstone. Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23 and, and the New Testament picks up this theme and it refers to Jesus, the Messiah, as the stone that the builders rejected. It's the capstone upon which God's uh, temple is built and that capstone which will fall and destroy God's enemies and crush them. Notice what the Messiah is going to do, verse 9. He says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Mm. The angel of the Lord, the suffering servant, the branch of David's line, the stone rejected by men yet precious, he will atone for sin. That's the promise of the cross. How can God be just? and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus? Romans 3.25 tells us God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Jesus suffered the just execution of divine condemnation for us instead of us. That's what Jesus does. You know what the name Joshua means? God saves well, there's another Joshua who's coming. Another Joshua. He's coming. He's the perfect Joshua. Uh, he, he, he's a, the true Joshua. He's not a Joshua who has filthy clothes, but he has pure and holy, and, and the Lord is pleased in everything about this next Joshua. 
It is Jesus who knows no sin, but is made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So these filthy garments are taken away from Joshua the high priest, and Jesus puts them on. He puts them on. He becomes the object of destruction that Satan is pressing for. The wrath of God is not poured out on Joshua and Joshua's sin. The wrath of God is poured out on Jesus and Joshua's sin. The wrath of God does not fall on you if you're believing. It falls on our substitute, the Lord Jesus He died so Joshua might live. He died so that you might live. So when the devil comes today, tonight, this week, next week, whenever he comes and you feel the accusations come, you sing with confidence as we saw last week, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul counted free. For God the just, he's satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. You sing that. You sing that in Satan's face. Silence his accusations. Jesus died. I'm clean. And with that, friends, like Luther, the blood of Jesus takes away all my sin. All of it. All glory be to God, friends. This is the gospel. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. For the justification that comes to us in Christ alone through faith alone. It's glorious. And Lord, we come to this table today and we remember and we see and It's a display here before us. Christ took our place. We should have been broken under your thumb. We should have, it should be our blood that was poured out because our sins were many. But Christ was our substitute. And so now we're invited to the king's table to rejoice and to celebrate what he has done in our stead. Lord, for those without Christ, may they feel the weight of their own sin and the just condemnation that rests on their head. May they look to Jesus. He is their only hope as he is our only hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.